thing. It deeply concerns me. And it's uh, poor little Maddie Ray Carrera. So sweet and innocent, wearing a Bears jersey. I don't know why you would give her such false hope. Because the Eagles, with Nick Foles, are going to win. And it's not going to be close. Uh, so today, we're going to be learning from a text that is near and dear to my heart. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And I know you're not supposed to necessarily prefer one section of Scripture over the other, but this one is beautiful to me. Verse 21, in particular, is a beautiful encapsulation of what Christ has done for us. So I'm excited to dive right in. But before I do, I want to pray. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for giving us new life. We thank you for waking us up this morning and giving us a new year. We ask that in 2019, Lord, that your name would be made great and we here at ARC would be able to glorify you. Help us to be part of your ministry of reconciliation between the world and yourself. As we dive into the text today, Lord, I would ask that you uh, make Jesus big in our hearts. May our, may our minds and our thoughts and our affections be right and pleasing to you. May I diminish and decrease as Christ increases, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the new year is the classic time for people to set new goals reform behaviors they don't like, and look to the future to build something. And as a young preacher, you knew I couldn't come up here and take that low-hanging fruit, right? It's a natural segue into our text today. There are an infinite number of books, articles, and advice columns that will instruct you on how to achieve your goals, how, the, how this year is a clean slate, and how it's an opportunity to turn yourself into what you really want to be. And now on one hand, I'm not going to critique efforts to improve yourself. The Bible does call us to work hard at pursuing Christ and his righteousness. However, most of us know that the majority of these New Year's resolutions are most likely not going to last. I've been at gyms for a long time, and January 2nd, it's a busy day. It's packed. Can't get an elliptical for the life of me. But I think we all know that in June, a lot of those people still aren't going to be there. And that's a, that's a truth of who we are as humans. We are, we are unable to make ourselves new, to truly transform us. But there is someone who can, and it's Jesus Christ. No matter how many books we read or how hard we work or how successfully we achieve our various resolutions, there is but one end for man, and it's in the grave we will all face death. Ecclesiastes 9 tells us that whether we are clean or unclean, righteous or evil, whether we sacrifice or do not sacrifice, all of us will face death. But this doesn't have to be the end. Christ came to earth to die on the cross so that we may have hope in him. And one of the byproducts of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is our being made new. And that's what the text today is about. And so I'm going to read it for us now. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21. From now on, therefore, 
we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I'm sure many of you know, if you have any church background, the church in Corinth had some problems. Sexual sin, divisions, conflict, mistreatment of people based on economic status, all of this and more were present in the church. First Corinthians spent a lot of time rebuking these excesses, and so too does Second Corinthians. There were even other letters, as many as four, that we do not have that address these issues as well. And so for our text today, one key bit of context that I want us to know is that one of the issues the church in Corinth had was a hard time accepting Paul as an apostle, mainly because of how weak he seemed to be by worldly standards. In person, he was meek. He was not a massively charismatic speaker, and he refused compensation for his ministry. They struggled to accept Paul because by worldly standards, Paul didn't seem like much. And there were other teachers, so-called super apostles, who seemed more impressive. Praise God, through Christ, his power was made perfect in Paul. And our weakness as well. Paul spends a lot of time pointing to that very fact. He is indeed not much. But Christ is everything and God is all-powerful. And there is hope for us in that. So with that context in mind, I have four points from this text that I want to get through today. First, without Christ, we are dead in our flesh and we don't even know it. Second, through Christ, we are made new. Third, it was Christ's work on the cross that enabled this new creation. And finally, now that we have been reconciled to God, we get to be a part of his reconciling ministry to the world. So with that, here we go. As I said, the first point, without Christ, we are dead in our flesh and we can't see it. This references verse 16 in particular of our text today. At one time before his conversion, Paul saw Christ in a worldly way, according to the flesh, in a fleshly way. He believed that Christ was what the world said he was, a nothing, a no one, a madman at best, and a blasphemer of God. We know this is true because Paul did everything he could to oppose the church and persecute Christians. He delighted in the killing of Christians. Our world today doesn't harbor too different of an attitude towards Christians, and depending on the context, is actively persecuting the church. Christ can be accepted as almost anything but the Son of God. He did not have much in the way of what the world would call success. Christ had nowhere to lay his head. 
Women had to provide financial means for his ministry, whereas our culture adores wealth. Christ was a celibate single man who never sinned sexually. Our culture celebrates sexual sin and sensuality. Christ gave his all, including his life, for the mission of God and for others. Our world promotes chasing your own dreams to the exclusion of all others. If you can dream it, you can do it, right? Our culture celebrates ease, comfort, and fun. There is such a dichotomy, such a difference between how Christ approached life and how the world approaches life. This is what Paul is getting at, that we viewed Christ from a fleshly perspective, a worldly perspective, and through that lens, Christ looks like a fool. Or worse, he looks evil. So in that sense, without Christ, our very mindsets, the ways in which we look at the world are broken, and they're dead in their way of thinking. Indeed, we are unable to understand the things of God without his intervention. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the blindness of the world's viewpoint and our own minds without God's intervention. No one lies to you more than you. This is a line I heard from a pastor named Matt Chandler in Flower Mound, Texas, and it always stuck with me as an excellent summary of the principle of Jeremiah 7.19, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We all have internal monologues in our heads. We're interpreting the things that we see, the people that we talk to. And we do this making cases for ourselves in selfish ways. We have this internal lawyer who justifies ourselves and our actions at all costs. We don't even know that we're doing this. We don't know that we have a bias that's messing up the way that we see the world to and creating blindness. The only way out is God's mercy on us. And this blindness, this false way of looking at Christ and ourselves comes not only from our own broken mind and hearts, but also from the devil who works hard at blinding us. Earlier in this chapter, in this book, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, Paul testifies to this very fact. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The end result of this false way of thinking is a wholehearted pursuit of sin and ultimately our own death. Without Christ, we cannot break our own blindness in the enemy's schemes. And frankly, many of us don't want to. We celebrate those who pursue and achieve what the world would call success. These worldly categories may have an allure for a time, and I don't deny this. There is temptation there. There is some level of pleasure, but they end in death and hell. At some level, we know this. The rich and famous or the successful, however you define it, are not immune from serious problems in this world, let alone the next world. One of my favorite writers um, was Ernest Hemingway. 
A lot of us were forced to read his work in high school, and for whatever reason, I actually read it. And I just enjoyed the way he wrote. It was short, declarative. I liked it. Uh, in particular, he has a novel called A Movable Feast, which is a memoir of his time in Paris that's particularly moving. I loved it. And Hemingway idealized a certain type of man, a man who was brave and calm in the face of danger, who every woman loved him and wanted to be with him, and every man wanted to be like him. He was hard drinking without embarrassing himself. He was active in the outdoors. He hunted. He was a classic stereotype of what a man's man looked like. And Hemingway pursued this life in the real world. And from the world's perspective, he had it all. He was a massively successful writer, traveled the world, hunted in Africa, watched bullfights in Spain. He fished in the Florida Keys at his leisure. He was wealthy. He drank hard with his friends. And he womanized. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And then, after de decades of hard living and success, on July 2nd, 1961, Hemingway grabbed his favorite shotgun that he used regularly in the early hours of the morning, walked upstairs, put the gun in his mouth, and shot himself. He had achieved success according to the world, according to the flesh. But it didn't save him, and it didn't make him new. More tragically for Hemingway and for those of us who die having never known Christ, eternal torment in, in hell awaits. Second Peter 3 tells us that the day of judgment will bring the destruction of the ungodly, and Matthew 13 tells us that hell is a place of torment. In truth, hell offers unimaginable consequences for a sinful life. Scripture uses a lot of metaphorical language to describe how horrible hell is because the reality is something we can't comprehend. Our spiritual blindness not only offers us false joy in this life, but damns us for eternity in the next. And so there are some applications for us in the knowledge of the world's viewpoints and how our own flesh blinds us and leads to a dead end. First, and this is simple, the wages of sin is death. The idols that we cling to will only leave us empty. We see this in the lives of people like Hemingway. There is no salvation to be found here. If you aren't a Christian, consider this today. Consider whether more of what the world is selling you will actually satisfy your deepest needs and desires. If not, why not? Is getting more of what the world says you should have satisfying you, or do you only crave more and more? And is that satisfaction something that never comes? Consider that Christ is the only way to salvation and the only answer to your deepest felt needs and turn to him. Second point of application, the riches of Christ far outstrip anything this world has to offer. Christ's offer of salvation brings joy eternal. There is no deceit in it, no bait and switch like the world does. Let our affections be guided by that truth. We should consider how frail and pathetic the world's metrics for success are. The church is comprised of eternal beings made righteous through Christ, with treasures awaiting that again surpass our comprehension. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 gets at this mystery just a little bit. And Paul says here, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. 
so that through the church, and this is what I'm getting at, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There is something about the church that is so key, that so beautifully captures God's wisdom, that the angels are watching it to learn more about God's nature. God is doing something so glorious through his people that we can't hope to fully understand it, at least on this side of eternity. This work will last forever, for all of eternity, and the world's successes, all of it, is going to burn, whether it's money, career success, spouses, children, whatever it would be, whatever you would place on that pedestal, these things will pass away. Christ offers you joy eternal. The third application point here is that there are no subgroup of humans who are more deserving than another when it comes to the grace of Jesus Christ. This is a direct rejection of how the world, the realm of the flesh, evaluates people. The wisdom of this world is made foolish by Christ. And this is what the church in Corinth was guilty of as it evaluated Paul. They evaluated him by what the world would call success. We too can be drawn into this same trap, judging people on the basis of what the world calls success. That can be financial, it can be in the church world, it can simply be somebody who's charismatic. We show a preference for people in our own cultures or geographic locations. All of this is against what Christ would have us do. The gospel turns all of this worldly wisdom on its head. There should be no partiality in the people of God, and there is no partiality in the kingdom of heaven. This should be the natural reaction for a people saved by grace, that we would judge by God's values and God's standards and not the world's. So despite the reality that we are blind without Christ and that the world's view on success is empty, there is hope. Paul's mind and his heart were transformed. If he, an implacable opponent of Christ, can be transformed in his thinking, then anyone can be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this leads to our next point. We are made new in Christ. Verse 17 in this section of text um, helps us understand this. And there's some resemblances here to the passage that Rick read earlier, uh, Isaiah 43. In particular, Isaiah's declaration that God is going to make all things new. And here's that particular piece of Isaiah again. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? This newness in Christ, it can be something we brush past quickly when thinking about how becoming a Christian changes us. But in what ways do we become new? There's quite a few, and I can't name them all, but there were four that stood out to me today as I prepared for this message. First, we become a new people. Ephesians 4.20 to 24 says it like this. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. 
When one becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enables us to pursue the righteousness of God. This does not simply mean doing good things. There are many people who aren't Christians who do good things. But it means our very hearts, our very desires will change so that we want to glorify God with our actions. And because of those new desires, pursue righteousness. This is the difference. It's not only that we do good things, but our motivation is righteous as well. And that's the key distinction between a follower of Christ and one who isn't. So this is the positive good, the things that we will do as a result of being converted. But there's also a a negative side, not negative in a value sense, but rather something we stop doing. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do sinful things less. Now this does not mean we'll lose all desire to sin by any means. We're still going to have some desires to lust, to covet, to covet, to pursue our, our own interests above all else. But it does mean that those desires should lessen as we pursue Christ and grow in maturity in him. Here in Ephesians, Paul exhorts us to fight as hard as we can to put those old desires to death. Upon becoming a Christian, we become this living paradox. We are saved by faith in Christ and made righteous by him, but we still live in natural sinful bodies in a fallen, broken world. This seems like it conflicts. But Paul encourages us to act like what Christ has already made us, righteous, instead of what we were formerly, sinful and without hope. We are also made new in our relationship with God. Before faith in Christ, we were enemies of God. We rebelled against him and did not desire him. In short, We wanted to get our own way and desired no part of God's design for us. But the cross gives us a new way to be in relationship with God. And I'll talk about this more as we go on, but again, Ephesians helps us here. Chapter 2, 13 through 17 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Christ made peace where there was no peace. He made peace between humanity and God possible. Consider that line, the dividing wall of hostility. It's been broken down. What an incredibly visual picture. I'm old enough, barely, to remember the Berlin Wall being torn down piece by piece in 1989 when communism fell in the former Soviet Union. You have people on both sides of the wall grabbing hands, pulling people over, other people taking tiny mallets and chipping off pieces of the wall bit by bit. They were tearing down the wall of hostility that divided Berlin for a generation. This is what Christ has done for us. He's torn down this dividing wall between us and God, but he doesn't do it with a bunch of tiny hammers. He did it with the power of his own blood. And there's more. Amazingly, it's not only us that Christ is making new, but all of creation. The new creation has yet to come, but it's coming. Isaiah 65:17 says, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 21.5 echoes this. Behold, I am making all things new. We see brokenness in the world, whether it's violent weather that claims lives, poor stewardship of nature, corrupt governmental systems. All of this will be washed away and made perfect when Christ comes into his kingdom at the end of all things. Every tear will be wiped away and sin and death will be no more. Praise be to God. Another thing that becomes new when we become Christians is our own minds. We talked about the blindness that we have and the Holy Spirit helps us replace this. In the flesh, we evaluate ourselves, others, and even Christ by the world's standards. These false categories begin to be replaced by God's standards. In Christ, through the Holy Spirit, our categories start to reflect God's. God inverts the entire paradigm that the world has given us. When our minds are transformed by the Holy Spirit, we begin to make different calculations about how we should spend our time, our lives, and our treasure. I'll give one classic example of how these changed affections can empower a life in service to Christ. I'm going to say this first name. I'm going to butcher it. Adoniram Judson was a classic example of this. He was one of the first ministries from, uh, missionaries from the United States. He was also a Baptist, so we Baptists love him. He was not, however, the first American missionary. Often people try to claim that he was. That distinction belongs to George Lyle, who was an African-American slave and once emancipated, started a career in ministry and eventually left to be a missionary in Jamaica. Lyle did this roughly 30 years before Judson left these shores. But regardless, Judson's a compelling figure, whether he was first, second, or 52nd. He was born in the late 1700s, and his ministry began in the 1800s. He was, as far as we can tell, raised in a Christian home with a strong theological tradition. He had quite a bit of family history in the Puritan, and more specifically, the John Edwards tradition. His father was a pastor. And now this history wasn't perfect by any means, but it did happen to be here during the Great Awakening. So in short, Judson's background was solidly God-fearing. However, Judson didn't come to Christ as a young child. He was intellectually gifted, and he went to Brown, which was then called the College of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. While there, he came under the influence of a man named Jacob Ames. Ames was a devout deist. In other words, he believed that God had created the universe like a watchmaker and then left us to our own devices. Judson and Ames, both brilliant, became great friends. They read French philosophy and dwelled on great Enlightenment philosophies. This was key in convincing Judson to abandon his Christian upbringing. After graduating college, Judson went on to pursue a great many interests, but one thing he did was travel from town to town looking for ways to have fun, largely trite things, going to taverns, singing, drinking, dancing. We see this in our own culture. We love to pursue our own entertainment and fun. One night, Judson found himself staying at an inn, and he heard quite a bit of noise in the room next door. Turns out, the man in the room next door to him was dying. Judson found himself intensely worried about the, internal, the inter, eternal state of this man's soul. Would he be in heaven? Would he be in hell if he died? But then he scolded himself. He chided himself. What would his good friend Ames say? He went to sleep, shrugging it off, 
thinking himself foolish for worrying about such nonsense. The next morning, he asked the innkeeper what happened to the sick man, and he was told the man passed away in the night. Judson was shocked, and he asked who the man was. The innkeeper told him, I had been a college man from Providence. Name was Ames. In a second, Judson's entire world had been shaken, and he saw exactly the end, what the end of frivolous living would bring. His friend Ames, who convinced him to abandon Christianity, died in an instant. This changed his mindset. The Holy Spirit used this experience to draw him to Christ. He quickly pursued Christ with all that he had. He went to seminary, and then he went into missions in Burma. Burma was a closed country, hostile to Christianity. And while there, he suffered imprisonment, illness, the deaths of two spouses, and several children. It was three years in the country before he saw a single convert to Christ. You see, Judson had been made new. He was transformed from an unserious, bright young man into a stalwart man of God who could endure untold misery in order to bring the gospel to a place that never heard it. There are some quick applications for our lives today from the truth that our minds and bodies and the world are being made new in Christ. First and foremost, we must try as hard as we can to embrace the new creations that we are through Jesus. This means pursuing the things of God with all our might and fleeing from sin. It also means being a part of God's work in restoring creation. This means to the degree that we are able in our jobs, our lives, and our neighborhoods to work for peace, justice, and care for our neighbor as well as the world. Perhaps more importantly, it means we start to make calculations based on God's priorities. Judson exemplifies this powerfully for us. We should be ready to trade what the world values for what Christ values. If our lives our weekends, if our checkbooks don't look any different than what the world would have us do, we should think seriously about whether or not we're pursuing Christ as deeply as we ought. This is the kind of mind transformation that the Holy Spirit can bring. And he can do this because of the cross, which leads us to our next point. Christ made us new by his work on the cross. We see this in verses 18 and 21. How is any of this new creation possible? Simply put, because of Christ's death in our place on the cross. There's a temptation, at least for me, to assume the cross a bit. In our context, most likely all of you are familiar with the story of Jesus dying on the cross in our place to take away our sins. It was the most unfair, unjust trade imaginable. Christ, who lived without sin, took on our sin and united himself so closely with us that he bore the consequences for our evil, immoral actions and extended to us the benefit of his perfect obedience. In order to do that, Christ had to suffer unimaginable pain, betrayal, abandonment, and death for our salvation. One of the most difficult questions I've had to answer when I talk to people who don't believe in Christ is the question of where is God when horrific things happen? But to me, the answer is right here. He came right here, and he suffered the same injustice that we do. In fact, he suffered a greater injustice than we ever will. 
Christ in his incarnation, in becoming human, subjected himself to the very evil injustice that we created. That's how much he loves us. He loves us enough to suffer betrayal by one of his closest friends. He loves us enough to endure all of this alone as his best friends denied and fled from him during his most desperate hour. He loves us enough to persevere through physical agony that I can't imagine. And he loves us enough to face separation from God with whom he had perfect unity with for all time. This is what the cross meant, and this is how we can be made new. Romans 8, 1 through 4 puts this in a particularly sweet way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there's no hope of us fulfilling the law, but thank God Christ fulfills it for us. And even more, how wonderful is the cross for we Gentiles? Christ's work on the cross makes reconciliation with God possible for us as well. Galatians 3.13.14 tells us this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ becomes a curse on our behalf so that we, those who are not part of Israel, may be grafted into the people of God. This is what he brought for us. One application of the harsh and wonderful truth of the cross is turning that knowledge into worship and love for God. When we consider how lost in sin we are, it increases our sense of thanksgiving and gratefulness to God for his mercy. Our love for the Lord should increase with the knowledge of what his grace cost him. Secondly, this love should turn us towards worship. And how can we not love and worship a God who is willing to give so much for us? It's staggering when you think about it. And finally, another application for us is to tell others of what God has done on our behalf. And this brings us to our final point. Since we've been reconciled by the work of Christ on the cross and therefore been made new by the Holy Spirit, we are now to be a part of God's reconciling work. And we see this in verses 19 and 20 of our text today. What does it mean to reconcile? It means to make peace between two parties. The conversion of enemy to friend. And in this section of Scripture... It means to make peace and right relationship between man and God by virtue of what Christ has done. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We were enemies of God, but Christ came to make peace possible. And now we have the opportunity to share that news of reconciliation with others. Our text today puts it well. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's what we're called to. All of this is from God, but Paul is showing us the way to be ambassadors of Christ. Simply by telling the good news and crediting God for it. This is key. It's not about us. It's about God. The application for us here is simple, but not as easy as we'd want it to be. We must be like Paul, imploring those all around us to be reconciled to God through Christ. We have to share the gospel with everyone we can. God has more people in this city. We have brothers and sisters in Washington, D.C. who are waiting to hear the gospel. It's up to us to be the messengers of the gospel to those people. If there are unbelievers in your circles, your jobs, your families, start simply by praying for them that they would come to know the Lord. Pray for opportunities to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And then look for opportunities to tell these folks what Christ has done for you through Christ. One key element, again, is that all of this is from God. The mandate is not about us, but about God's work in Christ. Kent Hughes, a commentator, said it this way. The ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them that God has made peace with the world. 2 Corinthians 6.2 provides quite a rallying cry. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, we preachers always say we're going to focus on one section of text, but then we grab right after it, we grab right before it, and I'm doing it here. But what a call. Now is the time. Why wait to tell people about Christ? Why wait to come to Christ if you're lost in sin? Do not wait, for none of us are promised tomorrow. There's no one in here that cannot be completely undone in a moment. And if you're here today and you don't believe, there is hope. There is more to this life than what the world would tell you. There is a Savior who has traded us his righteousness for our sin. You need only turn away from your sin and flesh and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he, will, that he did die on the cross, but that death could not hold him. He rose again on the third day and even now is alive in heaven, petitioning the Lord on our behalf, waiting to set all things right. So it's a new year, but all that stuff about making a new you, it's not possible without God. So in this new year, in 2019, pursue Christ who can renew you forever in the presence of his glorious grace. Remember what you have been saved from, your own flesh and the world's contention that God's ways don't matter. Remember what it cost Christ's life on the cross to make you new. Remember that good news and be a part of God's reconciling work here on earth by making much of Christ to others. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What better news could there be? It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter who your parents are or what part of town you're from. It doesn't matter how long you've been trapped in a cycle of addiction or in sexual sin or how long you've been stealing. 
doesn't matter if you're a gossip or a slanderer or arrogant or prideful. I've been all of these things. Christ has taken the penalty for all of it. The slate is wiped clean in a way that no New Year's resolution can come close to. If you are in Christ, you have been made clean, made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Embrace it. Embrace Christ and don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what Christ has done for us. The fact that he would be willing to trade his righteousness to us for our sin. We have nothing to offer him, and yet he loved us still. As we go from this place, Lord, I would ask that you would empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be ministers of reconciliation in our neighborhood, in our city, and across the world. You have great things to do, great works of the gospel to proclaim. We want to be a part of that, Lord. Give us a front seat to what you're going to do. We thank you again for your son, Jesus, and we ask that he would be uppermost in our affections in 2019. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.